Welcome to the 68th episode of the Real Life Diabetes Podcast, featuring a caring T1D parent and advocate, Anne Ember. If you're new to the show, my name is Amber Kluwer, and I'm the co-founder of the Diabetes Daily Grind and host of the Real Life Diabetes Podcast. In my mind, I'm an expert in keeping myself alive since uh, my diagnosis 36 years ago, but I'm not giving anybody any medical advice. (laughs) Um, Thank you as always for listening. Today, I'm thrilled to finally launch this podcast as I've been sitting on this episode for a few months waiting for the school year to start. I don't have kids, so this was a little bit of foreign territory for me, but um, I interviewed Anne in March, a few months after my December 2018 insulin crisis while visiting friends in San Antonio. It was really the very first time in my life when I ran out of insulin, and she, along with a flood of other DOC friends, came to my rescue via social media. Thankfully, I was able to work with the pharma company as it was a malfunction of my backup insulin pen, but Anne continued to check on me throughout the 24-hour journey to find insulin. (sighs) So blessed. Her passion to keep others make the K-12 school years and college transition years a smoother road is inspiring and uplifting. The world needs more people like Anne, and I am forever grateful for her kindness. She is a wealth of knowledge, and her energy is hopefully contagious, as we all need a T1D saint. But before we get started, I want to share a few quick announcements. Number one, do you have a diabetes hack you'd like to share, or a confession? You know, for example, um, you know, I picked up candy on, a street, on the street one day after Halloween when I was out for a jog. It was desperate times, but I had, you know... <laughs> I didn't have any low stuff with me. So you do what you got to do, but I don't say that to many people. And, um, you know, it's just one of those stories you're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I had to do that. Or, you know, your diabetes hack, you know, we hear often about you can still pull um, insulin out of an insulin pen with a syringe. You know, it's not rocket science, but it was a new hack for me. Um, And so, yeah, if you have anything you'd like to share, um, I think we all learn from each other. Feel free to send me a speak pipe message on the Diabetes Daily Grind website, or you can send me a voice memo to amber at diabetesdailygrind.com. Diabetes confessions and hacks. This might be a pretty simple hack, but about a year ago, I started trying to eat my meals low carb to high carb and high fiber to low fiber. This allows my insulin more time to start working and my blood sugars don't jump up nearly as much after meals. Feel free to give it a try and see if it works for you. Announcement number two. In episode 65, I shared a heartfelt message and new podcast platform giving you details as to how I can keep the episodes available for free. They're as easy as $5 a month. I mean, it is really that simple. And you see it more of a subscription with perks. Um, uh, I uh, have sweetened the pot with a couple of things. And, you know, I'm still waiting for those numbers to come up. So, again, the 100th person to sign up, we're not there yet. Um, You can get a custom portrait from Debbie Curtis. She is an incredible artist. And uh, you should check her out. I mentioned her in the last episode. 
Number three, I am so disappointed in you guys. I'm serious. Um, I really want to put out a new podcast theme song by my buddy, Mike Costi, And all that he's requested is a list of diabetes words or something, in, you know, like, oh, diapeeps and I, you know, little things like that, that, you know, we have our own language and he wants the, the song to be authentic, just like the first one. So I'm ready for a, a redo and I hope you are too. It'll be another catchy thing we get stuck on our heads. So um, shoot me an email. Come on, people. Same email address, amber at diabetesdailygrind.com. Let's see what you got. And number four, please continue to love, like, share, and comment on anything you see fit. Don't forget, I'm on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Pinterest, and LinkedIn. It's easy to find me. I think that wraps up the episode's announcements. So let's get started. And pull out your pen and paper because she says a lot of stuff, especially for your T1D parents, that is incredibly helpful and links will also be in the show notes. Hi, Anne. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. <laughs> All right, everybody that's listening. Um, Anne and I have been trying to connect now since December. <laughs> it's, wow, it's hard to believe it's been that long. But <laughs> I know. I can't, yeah, I was looking back at some of the um, notes that I took a while ago, and I'm just so the listeners understand how we got to know each other is when I was in San Antonio in mid-December, I had an insulin crisis, my first real one as an adult. And, every, you know, the power of social media and the diabetes online community, Anne was one of the people that stepped up and said, hey, I can help you. You know, what do you need? And, and it was just, I was very thankful. So, Anne, again, thank you for your kindness. And um, Well, that's what we do. We help each other. It's been amazing. We were able to experience that when we went through Hurricane Harvey. So I still had a lot of contacts from that, and I knew that we could find you what you needed um, during that time. You should be able to go and enjoy your vacation and any trip <laughs> and without disaster uh, right. being completely controlled by diabetes there. So. so tell me a little bit more because I find that really fascinating in reading your story. Okay, so tell me about the diabetes disaster relief for hair. Like, how did you come? How did you do it? Well, the Hurricane Harvey disaster relief. Um, well, that was just out of necessity. Most people mm -hmm. don't realize that you created a team. It was basically three main core people: Dr. Stephen Ponder and Kelly mm -hmm. Jim Crumpler. We got together and decided something needed to be done. We were basically in the city of Houston, just islands. Yeah. And at the time that we started working on that, we created a flyer, created a logo so that we would have some continuity in our mm -hmm. message and just started connecting people to people from each island that we were on. And even mm -hmm. my own home was surrounded by water at the time. And then as I had worked in uh, disaster relief before, just inadvertently in different areas, I knew mm -hmm. that the dynamics would shift. So Dr. Ponder and Kelly were right at spreading the word um, and then also through our type 1 family uh, network here in Texas mm -hmm. we were able to just spread the word that we needed supplies and uh, we were people helping people with what we had where we were <laughs> and so it really would have put uh, FedEx and Amazon to shame in the way that we navigated the changing <laughs> dynamics of right. getting people you know strip test strips if they needed test strips 
mm-hmm. uh, infusion sets if they needed infusion sets, and of course insulin because we were just sharing what we had. So. Well, and, you know, there's another group, and uh, you know, I hope to have her on the podcast in the future. But it's out of, um, I believe, Joplin, Missouri. But they had something mm-hmm. similar after a major tornado went through. The hospitals in the area realized there were people that lost everything, and what exactly. what do you do? And you know, one wants to have to plan for something like that. But it's really nice that we're all learning more about these groups. That if there is an emergency, you do, you don't have to go without. So. I yeah. applaud your efforts on that. Because well, well, and we we don't exist anymore. We, we were created in the crisis moment. Yeah, um, yeah. We existed for 12 days until everybody else could get things in order. Um, right. The pharmacies were holding up um, pieces of paper in the windows saying, we don't have this, we don't have insulin, wow. we don't have these things. And so we existed in a crisis of the moment, just people helping people. And then we took whatever leftover supplies we had and sent them to... Um, the Virgin Islands, which had been heavily impacted by two hurricanes right. also. And so we were able to then share the donated supplies that we did receive. But uh, it was amazing. And it's just the power of connectivity with our T1D community. Um, we would do anything to support each other. And that right. was just purely evident in this in this situation. Well, and I think, so if you don't know, and I'm going to sh- include all the show links, uh, show notes and everything, because this is one of many advocacy things you've done. Um, so let's talk about, so your son, Tristan, is that how, is that correct? Yes, Tristan. He's 22. 22 so. was diagnosed, what, 10 years ago? He was diagnosed uh, nine and a half years ago when he was 12 years old. And he just turned 22 and he's getting ready to graduate from college. So uh, Yay. hard to believe uh, he goes <laughs> to college 500 miles from home. So I understand um, that heartache that pulls on a T1D mom or parents, uh, their heart as they leave their, let their kids go off to school. So I understand that completely. So, so let's talk a little bit about his diagnosis. As a parent, you know, what were the signs, um, you know, what was the, how did it all go down? Well, Tristan and his sister, Arabella, were diagnosed with the swine flu in September mm. of 2009. And so he uh, was diagnosed with a swine flu, and she bounced back, and he didn't. He just wow. really never seemed to get back on his feet. And so he had been to the doctor several times um, over a course of a six-week period, so they had seen him, and he started losing weight, but he was mm-hmm. also in seventh grade and running cross-country. Right. And so we just were like, okay, I guess you're having growth spurt. You're um, getting moody because you're almost a teenager. <laughs> uh, you know, it was just really unusual. He went from the sweetest child on the face of the planet to like, okay, what am I in for? And so I made an appointment for him on a Friday afternoon, the last appointment with the pediatrician, because I knew something was wrong. I actually thought he had it, an eating disorder. Mm-hmm. And they asked us to come back on a Monday and do a fasting blood glucose. They had gasped when they saw how much weight he had lost because they had seen him and they could see yeah. how frequently it was, how, how rapidly he had lost weight. And then I actually, and this is just, I'm a big advocate for the psychological support for type 1 diabetes mm-hmm. because at the time he was diagnosed, I had one hand on the phone trying to set up a psychological appointment for him. Right. And then my doctor called on another, uh, on the other phone. And that's when he informed us that Tristan was diagnosed with type 1. And we 
had an unusual, um, instead of taking him to the, the children's hospital, mm-hmm. we thought we would better suit him by going to a close-by endocrinologist mm-hmm. that could give him constant care. But mm-hmm. when we went in for his um, meeting with the endocrinologist, the first three hours went well, and then they left. She left and left him sitting in the doctor's office, and our total diabetes instruction amounted to about three hours. Wow. And so within a week of being diagnosed, I knew I needed to fight to get him into the children's hospital so that he could get, and us, the education and support that we needed. So I felt like I was advocating from the week one with type one, I was immediately advocating and writing letters, please let us get in, because they considered him, at that point, a transfer patient, because he had had three hours of diabetes instruction. But we did get in, and we've had the same endocrinologist that's worked with us. Uh, In the nine and a half years, she worked with us even when we lived in Italy, and she's just been a blessing to... um, to adapt with us whenever we needed to when he's off at school and, and things so like you, that. So you get him into Children's Hospital. How long did he stay there? He never stayed in the hospital at the time. Um, wow. They considered him. He It took us six weeks to get him into the hospital. Wow. So by then, we were managing by the seat of our pants and mm-hmm. utilizing all the resources that we had um, and figuring this out on our own and he saw her about six weeks in, and then they looked at us and said, yeah, it was almost the holidays. They did not want us admitting him, mm-hmm. and we had pretty much gotten a, a good handle on it. By that point, how do you ever get a good handle on diabetes? But that came back to haunt us when he was a teenager because I don't ever really think he understood the gravity of how serious he was in DKA and things like that, yeah. how serious and how close. He'd been running, so he w- his blood sugar would go high, yeah. and he would run five miles every day, and then his blood sugar would drop. So he was kind yeah. of keeping himself out of DKA inadvertently. We just didn't realize it. Although yeah. that was the worst thing to do to his body, we just didn't realize what was going on. Wow, well, that so. is just, wow, wow. So, so he makes it through, I mean, I just can't imagine that. Like I said on many episodes, I spent two weeks in the hospital. Yeah. And I, well, you were eight, right? Yeah, eight. And mind you, that was uh, decades ago. But mm-hmm. you know, um, just to hear in today's climate, because I meet with a lot of type 1 parents, you know, you're given a diagnosis. You're freaking out. You're given a backpack with some stuff. I mean, I just can't imagine going home. To him having to deal with that. So we didn't even know, you know, you don't know what you don't know. And thank you. My sister had been a pharmaceutical rep for one of the meter companies and they Mm. gave us backup supplies. They arranged for that. They gave us a bunch of supplies that we didn't even know that we needed. And I should have known when I took him back to school the day after and the nurse looked at me and went like, that's it. And thank God and uh, for that wonderful nurse who kept him alive, <laughs> right. that, that knew better. And she was so grateful when we were able to finally provide her with everything that he did need. But um, we, well, when we managed. You, when they gave you the prescription for insulin, what, what did they start with you? What did they start you guys with? Um, he stayed on... Um, you know, he stayed on his insulin pens, Lantus, a long-acting yeah. insulin, and then a yeah. short-acting insulin. So we did both right away. Okay. And he stayed on that for six months because at that time, the protocol before getting a C, um, um, not a CGM, but an insulin pump was six months. Right. And he, three months into it, he broke both arms <laughs> and at the same time. 
And that kid gave himself his own shot. He could barely manipulate his arms around and get to his fingers. And he had one cast up past his elbow. And that kid made me realize how brave he was at that moment when I saw him never skipping a beat, uh, oh, giving man. himself his own shot. Because uh, I remember taking him to school and the nurse, when I brought him in that day, she looked at me like, oh, no, I don't, I don't think you could throw one more thing at me. <laughs> <laughs> but it's hard. Yeah, but it also taught me the importance of 504 plans. We were in the yeah. process of doing that for him, and that was the day before a major standardized writing test, and we were in the process of getting that done. And, of course, diabetes uh, and being sick and being injured, just a nightmare. Of course, he couldn't write, but um, really taught me to the importance of having a 504 plan before you need a 504 plan. Well, let's talk about that. that. Because I had never heard of a 504 plan until I'd say in the past a couple of years, just being around, you know, the parents of people with type one. So explain for those who don't know what it is. Yeah. Tell us what it's about. So the 504 plan is basically an accommodation plan for our type one children in school, K through 12 in public school. And the 504 plan comes from the Rehabilitation Act of 1973. Mm -hmm. So the Rehabilitation Act of 1973 and the American Disabilities, um, the the ADA accommodations Mm -hmm. that we get, those are basically anti-discrimination laws. And they're designed Mm -hmm. originally, when you went to school, you probably weren't exposed to it because they made an amendment to the act in 2009, 2010, where they clarified what would be considered a disability because Mm -hmm. previously they thought, okay, well, if you took insulin, then everything is okay. But then they went back and they clarified that, that no, if a major bodily function is impacted by this, you are considered disabled according to the ADA and therefore you would qualify for accommodations. So that started happening around 2010 when they started really incorporating students that needed accommodations in school with 504 plans. Um, because before that, you, most of them, most schools would look at you as they had been done, doing in our case, in our school district, looking at the, the parents and saying, well, your kid makes good grades. But they yeah. don't realize the other challenges, and that's even more so now that we're using so mm-hmm. much electronics and yeah. technology to help. You can't take standardized tests when right. you're taking in a cell phone or a CGM. I mean, you, you have alarms going off. And so you now need those accommodations to allow for that technology to be with you so that you can be in your best form when you're taking a test. I would love to know what, how, I mean, I did okay and I graduated from college, but how that, the, the 504 plan A and B CGMs and things like that, how that would have made a more, uh, I'm going to say, a better impact on my GPA. <laughs> yeah. Because you don't, I mean, yeah, yeah. Yeah, true. Um, how much it would have impacted you, um, how much better your scores would have been. Yeah. yeah. Definitely. It has an impact. I mean, and I saw that so much when my son and uh, was experiencing such emotional, even though he was a very even-keeled kid when his blood sugars would affect him, how how it just took the sweetest child and just I couldn't even <laughs> communicate with him. So 
Yeah, it affects our kids. And, it, and they need the support at school. They're often at school when there are not nurses. Uh, for right. our middle school and high school students, they're often at school when there are not nurses. And, and you need those accommodations in place to make sure people are educated and know how to treat and have access to the, the supplies that you need. So right. I talk a lot about that in the teen transition um, programs that I do. You know, and one of the things, too, and I'm glad that we're using the word disability now. Um, I never, ever thought I had a disability. I mm-hmm. didn't really think much about it. You know, and really until recently when I started applying for a career, a new career mm-hmm. um, in the real world, and, you know, all the resumes, everything is done, a lot of them are done online now, and it goes through all these questions. You don't have to answer them. But one of them does ask, do you have a disability? And it lists them, and diabetes is one of them, and I thought, why am I going to out myself? You know what I mean? Like, right, right. It's because then there could be discrimination. It's a really, really unique scenario that some of us are being put in as, as, as adults and, you know, for high school kids and stuff. But um, I want to see that language change. And what does that look like? I don't know, but just is really right. at home lately. Um, yeah, I know because when you're doing, I remember my son filling out his first application for a little job and he comes in and goes, do I have a disability? And then he's reading all the questions and checking them off, and he goes, I do. <laughs> I'm like, ah, I didn't tell him that. But, you know, they don't, you don't see yourself as disabled in that sense. But you do need accommodations every once in a while. You need to be protected so that you're not discriminated, right. discriminated against. And then you have uh, a fair opportunity um, to do your job and to be entitled to, to, to do that. Well, and I think about it, too, in a positive light as I try to do many things. Um, in doing more research, they sometimes the people that are hiring, let's just say it's a large company like Amazon, mm-hmm. and it's a third party that actually sees all that information, and they have to create a report stating mm. that they did not discriminate and that, let's just say, 40% of the applicants have a disability. Right. So it could work to my advantage at some point because I have a disability. They probably need to hire people that are t- have disabilities, but, I mean, the whole thing is just crazy to me, but... Um, Right. How that goes. Yeah, because there is a lot of reporting structure on things like that. So it can yeah. work to your favor. Um, it can work very much to your favor. I remember when I got a job because I was a woman and they were trying to yeah. use quotas. And I'll take it any day. I mean, <laughs> you know, so, um, it, you, so you hope that it will work to your favor and not against you. Well, and, you know, I was just saying to someone recently, um, I went to a seminar recently that was talking about interview techniques and how to better your skill set and what not to say. And it was, it, it was very informational. But one of the th- things that they said that you shouldn't share is anything personal like, are you married? Do you have children? Anything like that because it, it doesn't mean anything about the job. And I, I looked at the woman and I said, look at my resume. All it talks about is diabetes. I mean, I'm throwing <laughs> yeah, myself true. out there. That's and, true. Because, well, think about it this way. They're going to look at it as you took something that most people would see as a negative put a positive spin on it and you're making a difference in people's lives. I was Mm -hmm. like, oh, okay, well, maybe that will work to my advantage. So knock on wood that that is actually the case. (laughs) Yeah, I hope so. I hope so for your sake. Yeah, I mean, and I often blog about my son and I'm writing a book about him. I'm almost finished with that. And it's like, I hope, you know, as he now gets ready to enter into the workforce, they may Google him and see something. And he's like, he has no idea because he's like, you know, he has no idea how many uh, times I've entered his his name into a search engine because it was part of the SEO for the background part of it. So, 
Yes. And so let's you hope to get, at least be, have it be positive. <laughs> yeah. And you know what? If the person that wants to judge me and my ability to work in a regular career, if diabetes is something that, you know, I wouldn't want to work for that person anyway. Exactly. Um, That's a really good point. Ridiculous. Um, it is a really good point. Well, let's talk about, and I, I love in reading everything that you've done or are doing because Ryan and I started this whole adventure because we didn't know anybody else with the disease, basically. And we had also talked about the fact that both of us at different times in our lives wanted to create a series of books that walked you through middle school, walked you through high school mm-hmm. and college, because none of that information was um, we had access to or maybe it didn't yeah. exist. So in looking at what you're doing, talk about the teen transition and some of the other programs that you're doing. Well, teen transition for me, you know, we, my son went to school in Italy for a couple of years while he was in high school, and then we came back over here. And it, it's funny because during the teen years, often with our type 1s, they tend to start pushing away. And yet mm-hmm. it's the time that the parent actually needs the most support. Right. Because there's, you're really in a fast track of preparing a child that's going to go off technically as an adult at age 18, and yet you're on the fast track to preparing them to living with a chronic illness. And it's just right. not overnight, especially nowadays with uh, health insurance, mm-hmm. HIPAA, all of those things. You really need to create um, a dynamic teamwork um, that enables you to transition. You're transitioning into adulthood, and you're still part of that team, but, you know, easing your child into some of the adult decisions that they start to make. And so I started preparing programs, and really that's where the the name Type 1 to Go comes from is Mm -hmm. how do we prepare something so that when you need it, it's there ready to go. And so I have a lot of handouts, and and most people don't realize that the website that we have is really all geared just around the presentations that we do. It's not necessarily meant to be a standalone website, but that's how much content that we cover in the presentations where we talk about, you know, how some of our kids now face adult decisions even while they're still in high school. They're taking yeah. post-secondary testing, SAT and ACT testing, which fall under post-secondary um, rules mm-hmm. with the ADA, um, and that you're, you're not protected as much like you are K through 12, and you have to, you know, you have to seek it out. You have to be the one who initiates it. So there's a lot of differences, and people don't realize that our kids are merging in and, in and out of that adult world, like driving and yeah. working. You've mentioned working. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I wanted to be able to give parents an opportunity to sit down, and, and I offer these in little workshops where we talk about some of the things you need to prepare your child for. And, and it's designed for teens and their parents to attend together, and I don't let the teens off the hook. They start thinking their parents are going to take care of everything. And I'm like, no, <laughs> it's it's time. It's time. Right. When, you, when you turn 15 and you fill out that first driver's license application, you know, it starts so early. And so those are vital years. There's so much to learn in order to be able to go off and then be on your own. You know, I have to just ask to see if things have changed. When I went and got my driver's license, um, I couldn't, they wouldn't allow me to do it because I didn't have a letter from my endocrinologist stating I was in good enough health to drive. It depends on the state. And each okay. state has different laws. And I do remind people that um, driving is a privilege, not a right. 
Right. And it's the one area that's not necessarily protected by disability laws in the sense that if you have a disability, they need to still make sure that you are within your um, ability to drive. Sure. And in Texas, we call it the Department of Public Safety. It's designed for the public to make sure that you're safe driving. <laughs> right. And so um, it just depends on the state that you're in. Some do require that you identify as being insulin dependent, but that doesn't yeah. necessarily mean that you're not capable. So it just depends on the state. Our state doesn't require anything special. Um, but, of course, if you've been hospitalized, then that could Im- impact you as well. Hmm. So. Okay, well, what is, is as a parent, um, especially like in my younger years, I had the ridiculous uh, necklace that I never wore. Did When Tristan was diagnosed, did you, what does he wear now, and what did you encourage him to wear as a, as a young person? He's always worn um, a band that had uh, that he was type one. He was worn that from the beginning, mm-hmm. and then as he got older, he wears a necklace. Um, he has identification that he would put in his jeep, and he, um, but he wears a necklace. I got demoted recently because um, <laughs> he, he did meet a sweet girl that is an RN uh, when he was he went off to college and. He put her name above mine. I can't believe it, but we're still all a team working together. And I felt that that was also part of building a team working together. So he wears a necklace that has our numbers um, and names on it. So he he always clearly wears that. Well, you scored as a mom to get a your son's girlfriend being an I'm RN. I'm telling you. But you don't <laughs> realize he went into DKA at freshman orientation camp. Oh. And so he was, uh, they took him to the hospital and they said he's too sick to be here. And they had to transport him five hours across Texas back down to, they they needed to find some place to take him that can handle him because he was so sick. Wow. um, And the next week, um, she was at that camp and the next week at school, that week before school started, uh, he met her. And, um, and literally he, he, she goes, his friends introduced him and said, here's that kid that had to leave, that had to go to the hospital. And she goes, oh, you're that kid. And he goes, yep, I'm that kid. And they're engaged now. They just got engaged. So yeah, I felt like he scored and not only is she sweet, but she's an RN now. And so she's been a blessing. A true blessing. So I, I tell that story a lot to people because people get discouraged. You hear a lot of sad stories where people think, no one's ever going to want me. And I'm like, yeah, you just, yeah. it, all it takes is one, but that will be there as your support. And yes. that's the only one you need. Oh, so. Very well said. Well, share, you know, what else can you say um, to the parents that are listening? Or to the, you know, I'm going to say a young person with diabetes when it comes to all these plans and things to go into place. You know, what are some preparations that they can do? Or I'm definitely going to guide them to your site, obviously, because you do a fabulous job of describing all of these things. But could you give any tips um, to the listeners? Well, one of the things that I also created um, with the teen transition was we started doing, we did a school advocacy group. We Mm -hmm. created a school advocacy group for um, our school district. And we have over 500 type ones, give or take, a year in our school district. And we wanted to be a positive voice um, because we felt that even though things, you know, our school district was trying and they were doing their best, 
um, a lot of people really fight with the schools. And so for anyone that's ever sat in one of my presentations, it's not about uh, having to legally fight everything. It's about finding that that middle ground and working together as a team uh, with the school and communicating and educating. Um, when we lived in Italy, we were just flat out told, your laws don't apply here. So it taught me <laughs> about grace and right. working together and building strong teams that support your child at school. And you want to give them a voice. You want them to advocate for themselves. But um, you also want them to start accepting responsibility and speaking up. And we yeah. don't realize um, that if we're, and I tell people this a lot when I'm doing presentations, that once for a team, T1Ds, mm-hmm. if you start yelling too much at school, they stop telling you. And yeah. so the thing that you need the most is that open communication and working together as a team. And so we've really focused with our school advocacy group on finding positive ways to bring the message about type one to the school district, bringing issues to their attention. Um, and then that's all part of that teen transition, all of the things you need to be preparing for. People don't realize how many adult situations our T1Ds are in already mm. as teens, even in, oh, school, yeah. even in well, school. Let me ask you, with because I don't have children, so I'm not really sure, with these advocacy groups, let's just say especially in the younger years, are there any other groups for any other disabilities? I mean, I mean epilepsy maybe I could see because you could have something happen at school that would need medical attention, but it, are there any other things? You know, I'm sure there are. I have not heard of any specific, like, doing what we were doing. We were a group of parents that got together Mm -hmm. hours upon hours upon hours meeting and talking about, like, gaps in care and how can we bring this to their attention. So I would hope that for uh, other situations like that, that people would have worked together. But it really kind of boils down to what we were talking about in the beginning is when we decide to work together, we right. get more done. Absolutely. And, and so, and then when you decide to work together in a positive voice, you get mm-hmm. even more done when you keep having such a strong presence. And we just really wanted to be the loudest voice and moving forward and bringing type 1 diabetes to everyone's awareness instead of just being classified as diabetes because that was, as a a large school district, you have a large employer in the area who has a lot of adults employed by them, but diabetes, type 2 diabetes, is different than type 1. So we started, and even though we have both in our school district, uh, we we just wanted to make sure children were first most and first um, identified correctly. And Mm -hmm. then continue to increase awareness because we believe that if you increase awareness about type 1, we can also save lives because obviously we're still losing too many lives because people don't understand the symptoms of diabetes and how, you know, just recognizing how how important it is that it it can be um, confused with the flu. Yeah. And, you know, there's two things I want to say on that. You know, I was at a summit. Well, I've been to two summits hosted by a large pharmaceutical company, and they were talking about, and there were only 10 of us in the room, the frightening numbers of children being diagnosed with type 2 
Um, or not being diagnosed until way later than they should have. So their bodies are going through a lot. Do you Mm -hmm. know, and I don't know why you would know this, but with the people living with diabetes in your school district, do you have a percentage of type 1 versus type 2? Or very small. It's very Very small. small. It is increasing, and I don't know the number off the top of my head, but when we, at one point, we had like 500, over 500 and I want to say in comparison, and I don't know the exact number, maybe 20 of those might have been type 2s. So wow. it was a very small number. Right. Um, and I, I, those weren't exact numbers, but it, it, there were type 2s in our school district. And there had been, in the state of Texas, there had been a huge focus in the last 10 years, a great deal of focus on identifying those with type 2 mm-hmm. um, in the prevention. And yet... Um, and so there's a lot of focus on that, but yet really the large number of type 1s in our school district is just, I guess it's relative based on how large the district is. Right. But still, that's a lot, that's where a lot of our nurses spend their time. I mean, they have other issues as well, but, you know, we have, thankfully, have trained nurses in our schools and things like that. So, and that's Texas law. I mean, we have a lot of support because of the type 1 mom that. Um, that fought to make sure that we had uh, good laws in our states to support our children. You know, and that's what one of the things, and so in Oklahoma right now, we're working on um, Kevin's Law. Are you familiar mm-hmm. with that? Yes. So, you know, and I just think about, just like you said, a lot of kids with flu-like symptoms, and this may be in place, so I apologize if I'm incorrect in this, but I feel like every most children, hopefully, are going to a pediatrician throughout their lives. In the beginning, mm-hmm. every time they go annually or if they come in for a sickness, test them. Mm-hmm. Like, what is it going to hurt to have a little finger prick just because, you know, like you said, so many people are misdiagnosed or diagnosed much later in, in DKA. So why right. aren't we being more or are, you know, parent groups like yours? Is there advocacy for that? Are we pushing for that? Yes, there's a huge advocacy. In the state of Texas, the uh, Texas Pediatric Association did adopt the Beyond Type 1 uh, DKA campaign, and they did that. Uh, two of my friends that were on my school advocacy team, Amy Josephine and Carolyn Boardman, uh, really committed to seeing that implemented in the state of Texas. We still go into pediatricians' office and do not see all the flyers that everyone right. works so hard at getting distributed. Mm-hmm. Um, we still see situations where people, the pediatricians are uninformed and and yeah. kids are still getting diagnosed without being aware of the symptoms. If you're sitting in a pediatrician's office and you see all those symptoms, you're more likely to say something. You don't know what you don't know. You don't know right. that, uh, that the bedwetting and the freaking yeah. thirst, you don't recognize that those are symptoms. I My sister-in-law is type 1 diabetic. And I was familiar with the symptoms of type 1 diabetes. But because of my son's age, he wasn't sharing with me that he was going to the bathroom frequently. I mean, the moodiness was there from the emotional. I mean, he was just really, he was clearly going downhill. But, um, you know, he didn't share everything. And there was only one time that I recognized. He jumped out of our Jeep with the top off and went running in. and, And in the back of my mind, I thought, if he does that one more time, I'm going to think type 1 diabetes. And I just, you know, I didn't see he was 12. He's not sharing every little detail with me. And so to have that information in schools 
I really believe it would be very helpful in schools and then, of course, the pediatrician's office. And um, the Beyond Type 1 DKA campaign has helped with mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were, I was very involved with supporting my friends and getting that done, but it's mm-hmm. still, it's like, how can, it still happens. And it's, it's, it's just unacceptable. It's just unacceptable. Well, I think, you know, again, so long ago, but you know, I used to be so embarrassed because I had to, I always had to pee all the time. And, you know, even mm-hmm. after I was diagnosed, I was always drinking more. I mean, and you know, all the other things, you know, just making kids know that it's okay, having a teacher not shame them for needing to go to the restroom more often. You right. know what I mean? Like all of those little things that you don't think about at the end, but when you get older and you look back at how it affected your psyche when it came to having to get up to use the restroom, it really does make an impact. So right, right. I hope that those things are, are definitely changing. Ah. I wish that they were. I mean, the psychological, I mean, we're learning more and more about the psych- psychological impact on our kids. And thankfully, there's a lot of research and support going into that for all of us, you know, anyone that's affected by type 1 diabetes, but especially for our teens, they often go through a really dangerous cycle of being burned out. I mean, I think you, you probably have reached yeah. moments throughout the course of your life. It doesn't have to happen in the teen years, but... Having that psychological support is so important. Well, and something on that, too, and I was thinking about this just recently. Um, I, the burnout, the word burnout, because it's really a, uh, a buzzword right now in the diabetes community. Mm-hmm. Even if I was angry about the disease, um, I was still compliant. That's just mm-hmm. the, the kid that I am. Of where I know a lot of people, and there's a woman I'm about to interview in the next couple of weeks who, yeah, she just said, I'm not doing this. Like, and put her body through a lot, and she realizes that now as an adult, that it's, you know, um, I hope that with it being such a buzzword that the young people are seeing it, and it's like, oh, my gosh, this is normal. Yes. It's and okay for me to feel angry. And that's what I'm talking about when I talk about teen transition. The teens tend to push away, and so right. a parent thinks that they can't go to a diabetes conference where they can learn something because they can't go without their D1D. But yeah. the D1D won't be, you know, they won't go in there. They, you know, they're like, I'm not going. Well, that's when we need it most. We need to continue to support each other, reach out to right. each other, be open. And you see that more in the online community. When my son went through burnout, we were living overseas. Mm-hmm. So finding an endocrinologist that spoke English was a challenge. But also find, <laughs> there was no finding someone for psychological support that also spoke English. That was going to be right. much of a challenge. And we we almost lost him. And um, it hits you out of the blue. You're a child that would never lie to you suddenly thinks they know it all and they will lie to you about nothing else in the world but diabetes because they think it's their, their lives. And, and right. they, I praise God that we've gotten through that period. Right. And now we laugh about it. And I write a lot about that in my book and everything about the things that we learn. And we call them T1D Teachable Moments. Because every time something happened, we went back and said, well, how could you do this differently next time? We were constantly teaching to right. prepare him to go off on his own. Because he was going to make mistakes. I mean, that that happens. He was going to do things that he thought were okay that didn't turn out okay. And yeah. um, and thankfully, we had those second chances where we could talk about, well, what would you do differently? What would right. you do differently? How would you take responsibility next time when your insulin pump runs out of insulin? Right. So, you know, you're constantly teaching. But the burnout, thankfully, yes, we do talk about it more. And 
I'm so grateful for that because people need to know they're not alone. Well, and I, you know, I've said in the past couple of episodes, I've been in therapy and I absolutely love it. And one of the things that really took me off guard in the best way was some of the questions and some of the things that I was working through. When she would ask me uh, the way that she asked it, she was like, does this have anything to do with diabetes? Like your relationship with food or whatever. And I was like, oh my gosh, yeah. So when we go back to the mental health component, I think many of us don't really, you know, because I've never wanted to be on my pity potty, but never really thought about my, what I was thinking about or what I was dealing with. The root of it was diabetes. Right, right. And I think that as soon as we can really um, help people understand that that's just going to be a part of the process, again, going back to it's okay to be angry, it's okay to, you know, whatever, um, I hope to see a real change in that, that mental health is talked about so much more. Absolutely. And I always tell people, because I see it every day online, it's part of the, the, the diabetes standard of care. Yeah. Pathological support is part of the standard of care. And I always think if, if, if you have a teenager and you have an opportunity to get them into counseling while they can, yeah. um, all you're doing is building up tools and resources that Absolutely. they may need later. They may not use yeah. it for six years and then one day come back later and say, you know, I need to go back and I need yeah. to understand how this impacts. But um, if you had to think about every single thing, which, which you do, Every single thing that you put in your mouth um, for everything that you do, of course, how can that not? It's more of taxing. It, it's more of a psychological than almost yeah. physical. The physical is part of it, but it's so psychological. And you know, I was so. at a, um, I visited one of our tribes here in Oklahoma, um, and more specifically, their diabetes center, just because I wanted to see my healthcare versus what they were receiving, and uh-huh. I was like. All struck by the fact that when you get your diagnosis, and this may be more type two, I don't know, but you get to see a psychologist, a podiatrist, and um, the pharmacist is on site. You get every, it's a one-stop shop. Right. You get all, and, and so once a year, every six months when you come in, you get to see all those people again, a dietitian. And I'm like, wow, that is just, I mean, I, I'm just amazed. <laughs> I yeah. wish that regular care was like that. Right, even for my son, because he he currently still goes to his pediatric hospital, mm-hmm. and they have a transition program that we have utilized because he goes in he, he goes to school in a somewhat smaller town, and their care his first endo was great in the adult world. She was fantastic; it was a perfect match. And then she decided to stay home with her baby, and then he was transferred to another one. But the very first thing he said was, there's a huge difference between pediatric care and adult care. Right. And so if you don't find um, an endo that has all of those resources, the dietitian, Mm -hmm. um, all of those people that are there at your disposal, um, that it's really hard to get everything that you need for diabetes. And that's yeah. why I'm a big proponent of if you can stay in pediatric care, um, even if it's a blend of staying, that that time frame between 18 and 26 is kind of dangerous mm-hmm. because there's so many different aspects that you still need support with. Yeah. And, um, and it helps that that difference in care, unless you can find a really good support, you know, uh, and, uh, a support 
endocrinologist that has mm-hmm. everything that you need. And that's rare. That's very rare. Let me ask, okay, there's two things I want to talk about. What was life like in Italy um, having somebody living with diabetes? Well, Tristan had been diagnosed for a year and a half when we decided mm-hmm. to go over there uh, for the summer, and then we ended up moving over there. Uh, we had been back and forth many times before. My husband had been working over there. And our first thought was, we're, we want to show Tristan that diabetes doesn't have to hold him back. Right. And from the moment he was diagnosed, we thought to ourselves, we wanted to empower him. We want to empower him to know that he could live with diabetes anywhere. And it was a matter, so our approach was, you can do this, you can do this. Right. But of course, we didn't go into it blindly. We really researched, we made sure that um, we took, we took our own supplies, um, Mm -hmm. although that was, our preference at that time, we were able, we had insurance that would support a year's worth of supplies. Oh, you're um, I, at that time, it was the international insurance, but we were also on national health care. Okay. So we had both. And so we had a chance of experiencing both because he was hospitalized uh, for a while over there. But um, we really just prepared him. It was a lot. The thing people don't realize about going overseas is, yes, you can have access because there are diabetics everywhere, you know, right. people with diabetes everywhere. However, especially in a country like Italy, they're not always open. Um, I couldn't get gas, you know, on certain <laughs> days of the week. I couldn't go to the grocery store because, you know, they're taking a break from 12 right. to 5 every day or 4, you know. Um, that they were closed on Mondays, they were closed on Sundays. So having access meant a lot of planning. Planning, Even right. to go out um, and to be out wandering around, we couldn't necessarily just stop into a fast food restaurant because right. there would not be one. <laughs> and so you, we really we really taught him to plan, um, plan for that. And to always have extra supplies, always be prepared. Um, and we needed it, you know, because we did. He did slip into a diabetic coma one night. And mm. everything we had prepared for, every backup plan, every doctor, you know, he had a doctor, every uh, practice run to the hospital, all of those things came into play because we had prepared. So we didn't take it lightly. We didn't want him to know that he couldn't do anything, but we didn't. He needed to prepare and plan. Right. And carry supplies. And carry supplies. Us. Yeah, <laughs> because you never know what's going to happen. So we always had backup supplies and, and things like that. Well, going so. back to the very beginning of this podcast, like I said, that was the first time in my whole, I can say my whole life, with the exception of busting a bottle of insulin at Girl Scout camp at age 10, um, to where I was like, what am I supposed to do now? I had extra insulin. And right. everything malfunctioned. And it's like I one of those things. I couldn't believe your, what, what uh, happened to you. It was like, that <laughs> never happens. I mean. But I uh, felt crazy. I was like, I'm, I'm new to insulin pens. And thought, but I'm back on um, syringes in a vial. Right. And I, I'm kind of leaning towards staying on it because there's no room for failure in that. And, I mean. Well, there's room for failure. It could bust. There's other things. But you know, you discovered that. But but (laughs) people don't realize, too, I mean, yes, CGMs and insulin pumps are great, but they add another dynamic of interpretation of what something means. Could it be something else? And and that is 
you start eliminating things when you are on the insulin pen. So sometimes that can be a huge benefit um, to just have it be simply this. You've eliminated some of the, the factors that right. I go through with my son when I'm watching him on his Dexcom 500 miles away. And I'm like, well, what could it be? And we're talking about, you know, what could possibly be going? And we're eliminating things to right. change your infusion set. Have you changed the vial of insulin? You know, right. just going down the list. There's more to the list. So, Did you hit scar tissue? Yes. yes. There's always things. There's no easy easy thing about it, that is for sure. So. I always tell, especially when I'm doing the teen classes, the, the most uh, the biggest skill set our type ones have is adaptability. Boy, right. you know how to adapt. Um, <laughs> you know how to adapt. You know how to improvise. Um, definitely always thinking. Great math skills. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah. you know, I mean, definitely a skill set that most people don't have. And I think um, our young children that grow up, and you're a perfect example of that, they grow up with a lot more confidence in themselves and that ability to really troubleshoot a lot as no, I would hope adult so. pets. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would, struggle at times, but you well, are stronger. In, absolutely. And, you know, I was in a professional setting recently to where I'd shared my life with diabetes a little bit. And then we're sitting at lunch and they see me whip out my insulin. And this woman was like, you're so brave. And I was like, whoa what? I'm brave? And even think about it that way. And then <laughs> you really have a choice. <laughs> right. But then it was like, then it went into a conversation because she has a young a, a daughter and she was like, just asking me all these questions. It was wonderful to hear in that, let me get this straight. You have to count your carbs. You've got a correction factor and you, then you have to, and I'm like, yeah, that's a lot, but it's neat to hear somebody else ask and be wowed because I think many of us living with the disease and sometimes parents, we forget because it's because it comes everyday life, you know, no, right. nothing else. But um, that's yeah, back to basic training. That's the one thing that we realized during the hurricane. We realized that uh, many people had become so reliant on yes. the uh, insulin pumps and the CGMs. They thought they couldn't live without it. And it's like, but you can, you know, you right. can with the pen, you can do this. And, and, you know, and that's part of a backup plan is knowing what your back to basics is and, you know, having the spares and, and knowing what your correction factor is. Most people don't think right. about that anymore. And um, that was the, the six months of preparing Tristan to get on his first insulin pump. Right. That's what that taught him and, and us together, that how well, important that was. Here's a question I have for you because I was I've been talking to a number of people with type one, kind of doing a little side hustle coming up. But okay. if you were to okay, let's just say when Tristan was diagnosed, you got a just a, I'm going to say generic. I don't like those words, but um, pamphlets that said, okay, here are all of the types of insulin, here are all of the pumps, here are all of the CGM options, so that you have time to do your research to determine what is going to be best for your family instead of being told in a situation, here's the pump that I recommend for you. Right. Because a lot of doctors, you know, they get stuck on one brand and then they don't have any idea what one of the other brands is doing or the advancements there. So do you think that that would have been beneficial for you um, early on? Um, Not even early on. Well, we had that happen recently where – where my son, um, 
he, in at the new endo in the town that he's going to school in because we have a backup everywhere. Um, <laughs> he told him, you know, you need you need a new pump and you should it should be Medtronic. Right. And well, although Medtronic had been very good to us, they supported us when we were over in Italy. I mean, we were very blessed with Medtronic. And he had used it, but he was ready for something different. You know, right. you transition with diabetes. You, mm-hmm. you should have the choice of change. And diabetes technology continues to change. Mm-hmm. But that doctor kept insisting, no, it needs to be Medtronic. And um, I and they wouldn't give him a backup insulin pen. And it, it just so happened that week that he did have a pump problem. And it did give him too much insulin. You know, you just never know the dynamics and you just... You need to be able to make those choices for yourself. And, and they had not given him a backup, some backup Lantus, like we had discovered his Lantus was expired. And, um, <laughs> and so, because he was always relying on the, the insulin yeah. pump. And so I remember calling up to that nurse because he says, Mom, they, they just won't give me that. And I'm calling him up and, you know, here he's an adult, but he's in school. And I'm like, I have power of attorney and all of this stuff. I can talk. We have the right. paperwork all signed. I'm like, no, you don't get to decide. And reading the his office, pretty much the riot act, you don't get to decide. He gets to decide. He gets the options. Um, and yeah. you will explore, explore those options. And that's where we're leaving it at now, giving him the information, making sure that he knows the information that's out there so he can decide. Well, and to be honest, that, I mean, it changes so quickly. And mm-hmm. with new insulin being... a lot, yeah. So, you know, I think about with all these companies reaching out to us about, or, you know, about how do you outreach? How do you go, you know, how do people find out about these things? And especially if they're not a part of the diabetes online community, whether that's type 1 or type 2. I mean, the advancements are happening so quickly that nobody can stay up to date. And so... I thought it was just me because I follow all of that. And some days I'm like, I don't even know what's going on anymore. But, um, yeah, I mean, cause it, it is happening so fast. But every once in a while I'm like, I don't know what that means or what that yes. is. And I thought I was staying on top of it. And you know that, too, because you're in this community yeah. immersed. And um, you... you it's it's hard because um, like we you have to plan these things in advance. Like mm-hmm. he's on he after seizure last year he went on the Dexcom, but mm-hmm. he had been completely opposed to a CGM. So for three years he was at school without a CGM, and oh, then he got on the Libra, and then he got on the Libra and he liked that so much. And then when the Dexcom G six came out, he's like, I'm ready now. That's what I want. And it wasn't until the technology and the, the calibration issue was resolved for him, because yeah. he yeah. does not like calibration, <laughs> that he was ready for that. And now we're thinking ahead. Now, what will you go to? Because after he, uh, in like June, we'll start looking at, uh, we already know what he wants, but we'll look at switching insulin pumps for the first time. We'll be looking at a different type of insulin pump. But that mm. too could be his choice Absolutely. based off his lifestyle, what he does. And he, you know, he personally likes tubing. He likes to be able to disconnect completely when he needs to disconnect. Right. So those are his preferences, and everybody's different. They so. are different. Just hearing that, because I had a conversation with a, some dear friends whose son is type 1. He's, I think he's age 12 or 13. He's in this awkward stage, and he absolutely, he's on a pump. Thank goodness. 
So he refuses the Dexcom. He refuses an ECGM. And I'm like, I have interviewed so many people as adults that have had both or one or the other, and they say a CGM is way more valuable because it allows you to gauge what needs to happen. You know what I mean? Right. Right. I, I, I don't, and I'm not judging anybody because, again, I'm hearing this a lot, but do you have, did he say a reason as to why he didn't want a CGM? The reason, okay, so he'd been, he got on the Medtronic CGM, and he was on the yeah. first one that would do predictive. A nightmare? Uh, no, he was. He would it would stop providing insulin because he had that oh. uh, he had slipped into that diabetic coma when we were living in Italy, and right. they had they had their approval before the U.S. had. So right. that's when he got on that CGM. The calibration for him because he found that to be very distracting. He okay. couldn't find the uh, the alarms to be you know he found them to be too. It, it was too distracting for him, right, right. and um, he did not like that. And it really burned him out on ever. So he we went through two bouts of CGMs where we start it for a little while, and then he won't wear it at all. Now he it's his body, and yeah. we have to respect that. Um, and he manages himself pretty well um, with just his pump, and um, yeah. So that was his choice, but. He he was having issues, and it's it it's only recently that we've been able to manage him with the Dexcom afar. He's 500 miles from home, right? And to be able to get an alarm and to to follow through and wake him up in the middle of the night if he's having trouble, or just to see. And the most important thing for me as a parent, because that transition between telling him what to do when he was a teen to now just supporting him as a, a a support person, you know, part of his team, is to be able to call him when he's having a bad day with his blood sugars and my first words to him are not, well, what are you doing? What's going on? Is to say, you must be having a really rough day. Right. What? How can I help you? What can I do? Is there, can I, are you having problems? Have you thought about this? Can I order you food and have it delivered <laughs> to you at work? Why are you going low at work? You're a good um, mom. And, um, but, you know, to be able to empathize with someone, and I, I can't even say the word, but I think be able right, to yeah. know what he's going through, how difficult it is. Um, some days are just really rough. and More um, parents need to say that to their kids. Yeah, especially, and I can see how rough it is during finals and, and during the testing, the stress that adds to it. Um to, to just be able to say, I, I can see you're having a hard time. And well, and I think for so many parents, is, um, and we talked about this in this through therapy and things, is that we're all told to be strong mm-hmm. and to, you know, and to, you're a leader, you know, fix, you can fix the problem. And not in a negative. It was absolutely a, a positive thing. But then when we need to hear all of us at some point, I know you're having a rough day. What can I do to help? If you right. said that to your kid that lives with a chronic illness, what a difference that's going to make long term. Because it some really days does. you just can't be tough. Yeah, I'm really fortunate because we I was very exposed to Dr. Barbara Anderson because mm-hmm. um, she was associated with Texas Children's Hospital and she was instrumental in understanding the dynamics of the psychological part mm-hmm. of diabetes. And I've gotten I've been able to hear her speak so many times. Um, 
and her words are just full of wisdom about uh, she talks about diabetes CPR about right. uh, finding what goes what is going right and and I talk about this in my book when Tristan slipped into his diabetic coma I he was 15 I would have much rather kept him by my side and never let him leave again but I had sure. to realize on that day his life was saved because of right. a, a hundred things that went right. There were so many things that went right. And that's what diabetes, we tend to focus on the few things that are going wrong, but right. not seeing all the miracles around us that make it go so well every day. And, yeah. there, and there are bad days, but there are a lot of things that go right every day and a lot of things that our kids are doing right every day that they need to be continuously reassured about that they're doing a lot of things right. And, well, and celebrate um, those good things. You know, I had a straight air, a straight line the other day that I posted, right. I think it was on Instagram, and I'm like, who would have known? I did, you know, this is amazing. Yeah, <laughs> I only... didn't even know that you could do that. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. So... That moment to thank, thank, my, thank all the universe for getting me that straight line. Right. So, and having a CGM really does give you more of that intuitive, Predictive yeah. side that um, a blood, you know, the blood glucose test will tell you where you are right now. But knowing where you're going because oh. it matches up with more about how you feel when you yes. know when someone says, "I feel low, but my number says I'm high." Well, that's what the CGM is telling you. The CGM can show you why you're feeling that way, why it feels like you're going low because you probably are. You can see the arrow that you can't <laughs> see with the blood glucose. The arrow, and I have to say, and not a negative way, it's, it's absolutely changed my life, but the arrow now dictates my life in so many ways to the point of when I was getting ready earlier to go, you know, for this interview, um, I'm, you know, I'm nervous. I've got my, I'm trying to put my makeup on, I'm trying to get dressed, and I just felt really confused, like, do I really want to wear that? And I was like, oh, my gosh, maybe I need to look at my blood sugar. And, of course, I go over, and it's 112 arrow down. So I'm wow. tanking. And it gave me the opportunity, because I was 45 minutes before Glucose tabs. You know, I don't care if it's high at this point. I'm going to jack it up with some orange juice as well because I don't want to walk into this interview situation and with. Think, yeah. 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 So it, the arrow is guides my life in the best way possible. And when it is missing, then I question the world. <laughs> really? How long have you been on the CGM? Um, about a year and a half. Yeah, it it does it changes the things. I mean, it's funny, as hard as it was to get Tristan on a CGM again and then we started with the Libra and he loved that and was very happy. Now it's like my sensors expired and I need more and it's like well, you can go back to just checking oh no, I can't do that. I know. You <laughs> and it's like you just did that four months ago. How can you not do that now? So but yes, it's such a peace of mind and such a peace and, of mind and yeah. 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 Being able if to I, use that information smartly, you know. Yeah. And knowing to, you know, yeah, if I would have just tested my blood sugar and this is like at at that moment and it would have said one twelve, I would have thought, Amber, you're fine. You know, don't worry about it. And right. Then, yeah. Right. So it, it it probably makes you feel more in control of oh, you know so the difference in that, and I know for parents being able to to keep up with kids, I mean, even for us, you know, Tristan is obviously an adult now that you eliminate some factors that some of the parents with younger children are running around. How do you even begin to manage uh, a young child that's been jumping on a trampoline and running back and forth and um, 
how, how do you do that? And you do that with the help of a CGM, if you have access to it. If but you have access. Not yeah. everybody has access to that. And, but that, so that doesn't mean that you can't do it without a CGM because True. you yourself know you did it all these years. Ah, yeah, I can't believe it. Yeah. Yeah. My fingertips so, are like, what happened, dude? Yeah. Giving us a break. <laughs> yeah. So you went a long time without a CGM and so you know that it can be done. Yeah. Um, it's nice to have those tools available to you that can make it easier. Because you certainly need them. And if you can use them and have them available to you, it helps. Absolutely. Well, is there anything else you want to share with our listeners? Um, when is your When is your book being released? Published? That we're the book is finished, and we're in the process of loading it into Amazon. It will be a digital book, and it okay. really is about raising a teen and the journey. Um, a lot of metaphors because of our time in Italy and about the relationship uh, between a teen and their. Uh, and the parents of the T1D teachable moments that we experienced, the not-so-pretty yeah. side of things, but yeah. really about how we could have really held on tight, but instead we chose to have faith and not fear. We yeah. chose that that this was bigger than us as his parents, and that, um, that we chose to have faith and to believe and um, to just really... Um, know that there were bigger powers than us working alone um, on on this with him and that helped us to enable him to go on and to give him the confidence that he needs to be an independent uh, young adult now. So, well, so that'll be out hopefully in April or May. So it's just a matter of getting it loaded into Amazon and finished up with the artwork and everything. So we're excited. Yay. We've been working on it for a year and a half. Well, and congratulations. I'm sure so it'll be a thanks. peace of mind to finally get it out there. <laughs> yeah, I know. You know, you have a project hanging over your head, oh, and you're like, I do. so close, so close. <laughs> Many hours spent on this, working together to to put this together for everybody. So, and I'll put in the show notes, but you know, it might not hurt to say. So, if anybody wanted to reach out to you, um, again, website, everything will be on there. But is there any way that you prefer to be contacted? And you can contact us through the Type One to Go website. Um, our email is on there. You just reach out and contact us, and that goes straight to us. So we're, we answer very quickly. Um, and then and we're on Facebook, and so yep. we do post, and we try to stay. We post things every day on Facebook, things that are relevant. Like in February, I was really pushing about five hundred four plans, and now it's spring break, and we're really pushing about preparing for mm. college tours. Yeah. And yeah. and how you can what you can be looking for and now and then you know you're just constantly preparing for summer preparing for school transitions so if they follow us on um, Facebook we're always posting those reminders when you don't think to think about it we're thinking yeah. about it for you already um, and so and linking you to things on the website that can help you because we do list accommodations ACT SAT stuff. Um, all sorts of information that will help families at different stages. We focus on K through college. So, yeah. But I appreciate you talking with us. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm happy to connect. And again, thank you so much for offering to provide me insulin in a time of need. What friends are for. (laughs) And I'm glad you were able to figure it out. You were very resourceful and Uh. nice to know. We were all worried. All the mothers were worried about you. Like, (laughs) did she get help? No, and it was nice. Yeah, so many people reached out. It's it's one of those things where you just really um, feel a sense of community, and it makes me very, very happy to be open about living with this disease because I uh, emailed supplies to, uh, excuse me, mailed supplies to someone this week in need. So, yeah, never know. 
So. It's it's nice that we have such a tight community. It's 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 unlike any other. It really is unlike any other. So well, Anne, thank you so much for your time, and well, thank I, you for interviewing me. So <laughs> we, I appreciate we'll definitely it. stay in contact. All right, thank you. All right, okay, bye bye, bye bye. loved hearing all of Anne's tips and catchy sayings. I hope her son enjoys her energy as much as I do as it is clear she wants the best life for all people living with type 1 diabetes and their families. Be sure to check out the show notes as it lists her website and other links mentioned in the show. Before I wrap up, I have a few last items I'd greatly appreciate you listening to and um, maybe your input on. Number one, the Real Life Diabetes Consulting Group was created to help bridge the communication gap between the patient and physician. And I got to tell you, we've been meeting with hospital groups and research institutes, and the response from the medical community has been insightful on so many levels. And I, I just can't wait to share more about this because I feel like as the patient, it lets me know they're thinking about these things too, maybe just in a different way. And sometimes their hands are tied. So, um, but in order to help change the scenario, I also need your feedback from a patient perspective. What would you like to see improve? How can your medical team better communicate and serve you? Please shoot me an email if you have anything you'd like to share to amber at diabetesdailygrind.com. I feel like that could be like a drinking game the number of times I've said that. So hopefully you're remembering. Um, We have a lot of room to grow and you can help be the driving force for change. So let's hear it, people. Number two, please take a moment to check out the new Patreon membership platform I launched a few months ago. It's located on the homepage of the diabetesdailygrind.com and in the show notes of the latest podcast episodes. I truly hope you will sign up and share with a friend or 17 or 200 or on social media. We're all in all these little uh, T1D groups. The sky is the limit and I want to my team to grow so they can help me create and launch more content. I mean, I do 98% of this by myself and oh my gosh, there's so much more I could be doing. And I have a notebook that is packed with ideas. I just need a little cash flow to help bring those people aboard. So if it's the monthly $5 level or whatever you care to spare can make a huge difference. Number three, just a friendly reminder, I have a stellar list of future podcast guests and depending on your level of your membership patreon level you can be privy to who they are well in advance and the opportunities to submit a question i mean i think about some of the people i've interviewed whether it's everyday folks or um you know like rev run that was incredible so the opportunity to shoot your question to one of those people can happen just sign up okay and um let me think what else oh and if there, I'm also happy to stalk or research a topic you would like to learn more about. So no subjects off limits. Just let me know what you have on your mind. 
If you have feedback, ideas, comments, or complaints, <laughs> and I really hope you don't, um, please send them to, here we go again, Amber at diabetesdailygrind.com, and I'll get back with you as soon as I can. A lot of fun stuff is in the works, and I'm excited for every episode to come out because I get to share just a little bit more. But also, don't forget to stay engaged um, on all the social media because as soon as I confirm things, that's going to be the first place I go to. So stay informed or sign up for the newsletter, which you can do that easily on the website. Uh, That's a wrap, I guess. And I wish all of the T1D kiddos and parents a smooth sailing school year with little to no wonky blood sugars. We know that's not going to happen, but don't tell them. <laughs> Cheers to the highs and lows, everyone. When I'm Jones and it comes in handy, tell me, sugar mama, what you A1C? Are you into endocrinology? The pricker is a pricker and the pumper is pumping. Beats like Wilford Brimley keeps coming in. Officer, I ain't been drinking. My blood sugar is low. Bolo some insulin just to get it all in, you know. I'm counting carbs and my calories burning. Pricker to the finger to deliver the prick. Wake up tomorrow and it starts again because I'm alive. Yes, I'm alive. One minor inconvenience. A little thing called diabetes is the daily grind and the daily grind and it grinds and grinds and grinds and grinds. You got to watch what you're eating. You gotta watch it every day. What do you call it? What do you call it? Is it diabetes or diabetes? Had to check and see if your level is up or down. What'd you have for dinner? What'd you have for lunch? Did you have too many or not enough? Get all the levels to shoot up, shoot up, shoot up, shoot up, shoot up, shoot up, cause I'm alive. Yes, I'm alive. One minor Little thing called die.